0: Would you like to know more? Hi, Malcolm. Hello, Simone, my wonderful wife. It's beautiful
1: to be here with you today. I'm
0: glad to be talking. What are we going to talk about?
1: So on a recent podcast, you had brought up something where I disagreed with you. And whenever <laughs> we disagree on something, we like to hash it out so that we can get on the same page with the topic. So we both agree that right now, progressivism in the far left has been eaten by this super virus that has hollowed out the old predominant ideologies and just wears them like a skin suit and we agree that this super virus is primary objective or like the objective ideological function of it it's to remove in the moment emotional pain from people that's what it optimizes most of its decisions around so those two things being agreed where we disagreed was the movements that it ate, what the progressive movements were in the 80s and 90s before the age of the internet, before the super virus arose, what was their real objective and what were they optimized around this?
0: Yeah, my, my position and the general impression that I'm under is progressivism is the move fast break things approach, whereas conservatism is the hold on, wait, things are okay the way they are. Let's not Let's not change things so quickly. And so I don't see progressivism as inherently bad. I can see it as risky, obviously, because things do break when you move fast and when you're not careful. But it is just one philosophy. And ultimately, both progressivism and conservatism must work in concert. Because if you don't have advancement, if you don't have people moving fast and breaking things, you don't deal with new existential threats. You don't advance. But if you only advance, if you only try new things and constantly change, you both lose a lot of value collectively and a lot of efficiency and also subject yourself to maybe more existential risks than you're building solutions to, if that makes sense. Do you have a differing definition of these things? I do. Yeah. So I think the progressive movement always
1: had an aesthetic element to it that contained what you're talking about and has always professed to care about that. For a long time, it's professed to care about that. But I think we need to remember that something could be called the Patriot Act and be totally unpatriotic, right? Like, just because something professes something doesn't mean it does it. And I think that when we're talking about, when we talk about conservatives, modern or even older conservatives, they'll often say that their movement, one of the big things they care about is small government, right? And yet they almost never do anything that actually makes the government smaller or that really deconsolidates executive power or that. And so just because a movement says, and a lot of members believe that this is something that they do, I don't think that we should take that to mean that's actually what they're optimizing around. So when I look around progressive policy pushes in the nineties and the eighties, they all really seem to me based around optimizing equality. Specifically equality of outcomes and the more equality you had, the more equality you had in the way people were treated in the opportunities people had access to in sort of everything, the better. And this is not what it optimizes for anymore. An example of how much it doesn't optimize for equality now can be seen in insane things that it's done recently. So it's a lot of people, they might not agree with our original premise that it's been eaten and now it does something entirely different. So if you look at what progressivism does now, so you have Simone's vision of progressivism and my vision of progressivism, and we can talk about why each of those visions might be negative in some ways, and we can get to that. And I think that the equality drive is actually a pseudo-communist drive and that it's driven with the long-term plan to a communist-like society. But, or very socialist like society, like as close to communism as you can get. But if we go back to the main claim that we made at the beginning, which is that progressivism today isn't that anymore. So when we look at something like the recent fight in California, which was to have kids like not take tests or remove the amount of testing that kids get, because some kids get bad grades on tests. And that hurts their feelings. So let's remove this thing that's hurting people's feelings. Now, obviously, in the long term, if you remove testing, that testing was primarily motivating the kids who didn't have parents who were motivating them. The rich kids' parents still send them to SAT prep. They're still sending their kids to to forced environments where they are in some way socially or economically or emotionally punished for not continuing to achieve, to not continuing to do well. Whereas when you have less socioeconomically advantaged people, often they don't have as much time to spend on their kids in those ways. They don't have as much time to engage those kids on those things. So the people who are vastly disproportionately hurt by removing things like that are going to be the economically less fortunate. So you are increasing inequality, but removing in the moment suffering. And you see this across the board. Again, I always come back to the Hayes movement as being a great example of this, but I really think it is. The Healthy in Every Size movement saying that it is bigoted to teach or publish research that shows that it might be unhealthy to be severely overweight. That causes in the moment emotional pain and therefore it is bad, regardless of whether or not it is true and might help people in the long run. That's just, you then rework what is true and what is being communicated to be the thing that hurts people less. Another area where you see this progressive policy of not at all being like what progressives used to be is these drug programs where they're giving hard drugs to people on the streets really at high levels because not having your drug when you want it causes emotional pain. Therefore, it is evil. Therefore, we should give it to people, even if it causes more long-term suffering and exasperated social inequality caused by things like mental disorders. And you can see this in polyamory, like the social movements that you see today, right? I want sex now right? And I might have some set of rules, but all of those rules I have with my partner are based around removing emotional pain for me and the partner while doing whatever I
0: want. All right. But I'm going to push back on your premise around equality. I think that-
1: The old objective.
0: Yeah. I don't think that's what progressivism is really about. I think that equality maybe correlates more highly with Christianity. Mm. That's like a concept that- Was introduced with Jesus in the New Testament. And it's all about like now the the meek shall inherit. And the all, you know, this is about that's where victimhood became cool. That's where helping the poor became cool. That's where helping everyone became like a desirable and virtuous thing. And I think that Christianity or like pro religion groups have isolated, sorry, sorry, oscillated between progressivism and conservatism. So I think that there's a lower correlation between equality, which I very much like connect with Christianity and conservatism or progressivism. And I think more of it has to do with who is in favor of changing things and who is not in favor of changing things. There has been time when the Catholic church and then broader Christianity has been very pro-change. And there have been times when it has been very anti-change. So I don't agree with what your like basic argument is.
1: I really find the point you just made very fascinating. And I do agree that you're right, that before Christianity, and this was actually a really interesting thing if you study the history of like early Christianity, the idea of looking with reverence on the less fortunate in society was not really done. There there was very little cultural precedent for doing that, at least within the traditions in those geographic regions. And this is something you can actually see Romans talk a lot about in the early Christian tradition, is they saw it as really interesting the way that Christianity did that, and potentially even morally superior to their existing pagan practices. As to why Christianity does that, I suspect it's because their original, like the progenitor of it all, was somebody who was suffered, who was downtrodden, and that they showed their dedication through suffering and of unpraised suffering in the moment. And that is why for a long time after this, and if you're not familiar with the early Christian church, the core thing you would do to be cool in the Christian church was to become martyred. That was the highest act of devotion. And then when the Roman government, Christians started freaking out about this because they could no longer do the key thing, the in state, right? And so then what that's when the monastic tradition started. So they would they just get they got fed up that they couldn't get themselves killed. So they'd just walk into the desert and then say, okay, I'll live this sort of life of suffering. But this elevated this, this life of suffering, which really elevated the poor, which is really philosophically interesting. But I don't know. I actually think both the progressive, the communist, And the conservative faction. I love the conservative factions. Like, you guys aren't the Christians. And then the Christians say, you guys aren't the progressives. They're like, you guys aren't the good Christians. And the truth is that Western civilization has been so inundated in Christian values for so long. I actually think both perspectives are different parts of the Christian kaleidoscope and represent different Christian denomination values and different ways of relating to those values. And so I think it's wrong to say that the conservatives are the Christian influence side and the progressives aren't the christian influence side um so however you agree I you with me i well okay but here's where i don't agree with you so when i look at the actual policy decisions that they were pushing they were pushing for a very specific and stupid kind of equality and that is equality regardless of what you do that you can dress any way Take any action, act in any way, put any amount of effort into something, and you should still be socially treated the same and get the same rewards. You should be able to not go to work and still get the same rewards as somebody who does go to work.
0: Whoa, no, that's an an extremist position. That is one progressive group that has made arguments like that. And again, like there are—that's this—is what I personally, because I'm going to hold out. Like I'm trying to stand progressivism here. Progressivism is about letting ideas out there, trying them, but it's not about enforcing them and it's not about forcing them on other people. It is, hey, let's try this social experiment. Hey, let's try letting people dress whatever way they want. Let's try and see what happens when women vote. And But in they the never end, had a
1: fail state. That's the thing about social experiments is they're supposed to have a fail state. Like we know if X or Y happens.
0: Progressivism and conservatism are about the next step we take. They're not about determining what, what fails or what succeeds. And in fact, a very progressive system would have a higher revolution, a higher respawn rate than like a conservative system because the progressive system would say, oh, wow, we all just tried like... Being naked for a year. That was dumb. Here's a new progressive idea. Maybe we should wear clothes. Cool. Let's try it. Whereas I'm going to be like, radical man.
1: I don't know, We've, did you see the so uh, article article like advice or something and they're like there's this cool new thing people are doing in San Francisco called radical monogamy but see that's
0: the progressive way, and the it, conservative way in San Francisco would be like no, let's stick with polyamory we know it works and let's not go around changing things and progressivism yeah, we, is we, we tried this
1: polyamory thing
0: let's give it another few centuries Yeah, exactly and that's what I'm saying, like progressivism is great because it allows for greater adaptability, I think conservatism is the also very necessary hesitation before doing something crazy so that you don't end up hurting a lot of people. Because a point that you make about governance, for example, is progressivism within governance models, especially on the state level, is incredibly dangerous because when you do something wrong, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people may die. So there is a place for these things. So
1: here's how you convince me. Can you think of actual mainstream progressive policy positions? You have a window here, okay? you have the 90s to the 50s, all right? And you've got progressive positions from that period, okay? I want you to find a single one that was an actual policy position that they pushed for that couldn't be argued to primarily be about equality instead of just social accelerationism. Because what you're describing is social accelerationism, and you get social acceleration, like Calvinist tradition, which we're both from, is a very socially accelerationist position. They were always experimenting with new cultural Gay practices. Gay marriage.
0: What? Gay marriage. Gay marriage? That I don't think that's about equality. equality. Hey, hey equality. if it were about equality, then we would have animal marriage too, all right? It, like it, This no, is for because,
1: the gays. No, What are you talking about? Come on. It was 100%. <laughs> if you were about social change, you would have animal marriage. Gay marriage was saying, this isn't hurting anyone and it's not involving any non-consenting entities. And therefore, it should be allowed because equality explains the push towards gay marriage much, much, much more so than just social experimentation. And in fact, I would bet that many gay proponents would find that quite an insulting reason to say why progressives were standing gay marriage was what, they just wanted social experimentation? They just wanted social change? No, they were fighting for equality. And anyone would have told you that.
0: Perhaps you're right. I think it's it's acknowledging that an old social institution was no longer relevant and allowing that social institution to evolve. That is to say marriage. Conservatives
1: change their practices all the time. So if you want to talk about a big social change that happened during that time was the conservative antagonism towards abortion. That Mm -hmm. just wasn't true before like the fifties. Conservatives were
0: pro-abortion?
1: Yeah, they were pro-abortion in fact there were surveys done and conservatives were much more pro-abortion than progressives really yeah so the abortion thing only came about because they were trying to capture the catholic voting bloc which was always anti-abortion so i looked this up after recording and at the republican national convention in kansas city in 1976 the majority of the constituents there were pro-choice but like evangelicals being anti-abortion? No, that was not a thing historically. That was social experimentation. Now you look at the highly derived evangelical movements. They're constantly coming up with new social practices. Like speaking in tongues or weird types of parades they do. Or, oh, now we're going to talk with each other with these words. You know They're always socially experimenting. What you are seeing here... It's progressives have defined a specific type of social experimentation as good, as progressive. And because you grew up in that environment, that was the only thing you saw. You saw all of the conservative social experimentation as intrinsically regressive when it wasn't. It was trying out new things. All of these quote unquote conservative cults or like extremist conservative religious factions, that was social experimentation just as much as a hippie commune. Now, Here's the separate argument. If you look across cultures, you have cultures that are called, I want to say accelerationists or derivative, and they change a lot. But you don't just see this in cultures, you see this with languages. So if you look at spe- specific language groups, as they've derived from Indo-European, some languages, just for whatever reason, are really highly retained. They just don't change. They, they keep saying things the same, et cetera. Other groups that deviated from the same cultural evolutionary tree at the same time they just have a cultural tendency of changing really quickly in the way they say things and the speed they adopt new words, everything like that. If you look historically, actually the core differentiation here wasn't progressives versus conservatives. It was the Catholic and Orthodox versus the Protestant traditions. The Protestant tradition, oh, it's derived. The Protestant tradition has always been a highly derived tradition, with certain iterations of the Protestant tradition, specifically the Calvinist iteration, being the most derived iteration of the Protestant tradition. That's why when you look at the founders who were predominantly Calvinists, you would see them doing things like editing their Bibles to try to make them more like up-to-date with modern science and stuff like that. That was both highly derived, but a very conservative practice because they still really followed this new social structure that they had created and i would argue that conservatism today is still the same in terms of its long-term objective as conservatism in the 90s and 80s and this is where you can see your core thesis falling apart i think is that it is about intergenerational cultural fidelity what they care about is their culture surviving into the future yet If you're looking at the Protestant tradition, specifically the most fervent of the Protestant traditions, they're often highly derived cultural groups. Look at the Mormons. Talk about a derived cultural group. They have very odd sorts of practices. And And they do innovate. They do do
0: adapt. It takes them a little while, but they adapt
1: they do it at yeah. yeah they do a lot more social experimentation than i'd argue progressives do if you, and their social technologies are really cool like we can get into mormon dating and stuff like that like they've developed some pretty interesting social technologies but well, let's actually talk about that so let's talk about how a single word works just as an example like derived and newish social technology what they do is the single people so are... just
0: to provide a little bit of context like at a in a On Sundays, different waves of people will go to church services and a singles ward would meet at a certain time, like maybe at 8 a.m. when like the rest of all the families in that general area would meet at 10 a.m.
1: single people.
0: And yeah, yeah, then it's, yeah, it's a church service followed by, you know, activities afterward. They hang out, they go to lunch. Yeah, but hold Um, on, it's not just activities.
1: So what they would do is they would pair up usually people who were like dated or interested in each other in the ward to play mother and father of the ward. And so instead of going back like you would if you were married and going to your home and then doing family day with the kids, you would do family day with the ward where this couple plays the role of mother and father and then hosts like an event, like a party, like a mixer for the other people in the ward in the same way that they would do for their kids if they were older. And it allowed them to try out relationships in a way that I think probably led to healthier relationships forming. So that's an example of a newish social technology. I don't know if it's that new. Okay, I looked it up after recording and it appears that it gained prominence in the 1970s but was invented in the 1950s. So yes, a very new social technology. It's more of a conservative tradition because that social technology was experimented with the idea of forming relationships and transmitting the culture onto the next generation. So it was towards conservative ends and not towards progressive ends where when they experiment with new social practices, historically, before they were eaten by the virus and now they're just like a ghoul wearing a flesh suit, they were about maximizing equality.
0: Okay, hold on. I don't think it's about maximizing equality. I think it goes back to a different definition that you've given about both the present but also past difference between progressivism and conservatism with conservatism fighting for intergenerational well-being and progressivism fighting for intragenerational well-being. So progressivism optimizing around the well-being of people here and now. We don't really care about our grandchildren's grandchildren. And conservatives arguing more in favor of now. Screw our
1: kids. So the one big deviation from all this is global warming. Where does this fit into things for you? Because it's the one area where progressives actually take a long-termist perspective.
0: Don't you think it's one of those things that's arbitrary, like with the war in Ukraine, how in the United States, like, it's almost, it's a little counterintuitive how, we'll say Democrats and Republicans decided to support different angles on the conflict. And I, I don't think necessarily it had to be. So I'll change.
1: give you my answer to this. Okay. I think what's happening is the progressive institution has predominantly, when we talk about the super virus or where it really began to spread, it was at university campuses. Okay. And... Um, At that time, the conservative institutions, a lot of people think of conservative as anti-academic, but that really wasn't true. If you go back to the conservatism of the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of conservatives in academia back then. But once the progressives had really captured the academic system as a means of replicating their ideology because they weren't having as many kids, so they needed to proselytize somewhere. Then the conservative institutions began to distrust anything that was coming out of academia. And global warming really requires a law, an academic perspective to judge how dangerous it really is. And so I think that what we're really seeing here is more a distrust of academia from conservatives and the progressive priesthood, if they have a priesthood, which they do actually, it's academics. That's the height of the... That's who tells them what's true and what's false. But in the same way that if you look at the older Catholic tradition and you wanted to go determine what was true and what was false. And we can go over a different video in this. You'd go to your priest, right? And that was the core divide between them and the Protestants. The Protestants said, oh, you should determine this on your own. And obviously some Catholic traditions have different, but the progressive faction, when they're trying to determine what's true and what's false about the world, they say, ask the experts. But what do they really mean by experts? They mean people who have been accredited by this university system where you can be fired for saying something too conservative, right? That's not experts. That's just what's the progressive status quo, which is really, especially now, right? Really, it just makes it a priesthood.
0: Yeah. Yeah, maybe you've convinced me a little bit. I guess growing up with progressive culture, one wants to believe that it's more well meaning than it perhaps is or melt well, more Equality is well-meaning if you don't think about no, it. No, yeah, if you don't think about it, but equality is a complete farce. There is no such thing as equality. Explain
1: what you mean by that. That them fine words to a lot of people.
0: I know, but once you think about it, it's it, it, Yes, so this happened. I realized this upon reading a book called Policy Paradox by Deborah Stone. In one chapter, she describes a professor bringing a cake to a class and dividing it fairly or equally, but then she describes all of the different ways in which the cake can be equally divided. And I'm not going to give exact examples based on who gets the best grades, who's the hungriest, who has the best way to tolerate a glycemic load, who really likes cake the most, who she likes the best, who walked up first to get a piece of cake. There are many ways to eat. I think I don't like the examples used just easier. I think a better way to say
1: it was, is it who's the hungriest? who needs calories the most, like mm. who's physically the biggest? Mm. Is it exactly equal distribution? Is it to the people who have less access to cake at home? Is it people who yeah. have less money so they couldn't get a cake in class as much?
0: Yeah. So that there's or people need- who got better grades.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or the people who got more cake last time get less
0: cake this time. Yeah, yeah. It's depending on sort of who you are and where you stand in this and how much you want cake, it might, an equal division of the cake might feel very unfair to you, very unequal to you. You could always
1: manipulate what equality means.
0: Yes. And because you have to make a judgment call on what, how we define equal and there is no one universal thing that you can use as criteria. There is no such thing as true equality. There's equality along one dimension and it's a very one dimensional way to think about things. So yeah, if you base an entire political philosophy around equality, especially if that equality is not something that also is core to that, that political philosophy, if equality were defined in progressivism, I don't. I don't even know how it could be defined. Well, the
1: reason it's not defined is because it's defined loosely, so everyone can believe that if things were divided more equally, they'd have more stuff. They would
0: benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and well, this I think is what's really interesting about intersectionality as a concept is that it's like a moving goalposts for equality that enables people to cheat. It's like a cheat code for having things made more equal in your favor. Yeah,
1: because it it has allowed people to say, I deserve more and I am more excluded and have a bunch of exclusionary labels. I think as progressivism began to be eaten by the virus, as it began to optimize itself around removing emotional pain, it did begin to define this equality that it was trying to create, where equality is the people, the people who deserve the most are the people most susceptible to emotional pain. And this is why you have these emotionally fragile, they deserve so much special treatment when no sane culture would be like, oh yes, the emotionally fragile, that is who should have the most resources and run society. But within progressive culture, yeah, of course the emotionally fragile because it is their emotional fragility and their susceptibility to emotional harm, which means they mean more protection in a society where the core promise, the core thing that's getting people on board is we will protect you from pain. So I will say that you have seen this transition, but I think, yes, in 90s and 80s progressivism, they didn't know what equality meant. And this is why those communist systems always fail. It's because they say, oh, we're gonna create equality. And then what happens, just because humans are humans, is that the groups in power within these systems end up defining equality in a way that favors them. And if you're not in power, then you can't do anything but revolt create a new system, and then inevitably in a few years you end up redefining equality to what favors you. And so that's the problem with equality is that it is such a slippery concept. I think that we now have a progressive ideology that does define equality. It does define who deserves more. The problem is it's just a really stupid definition. Even worse, it's a stupid definition because, okay.
0: How does it describe equality?
1: Uh, yes, the people most susceptible to emotional pain deserve more.
0: The <laughs> well, So the, the most mentally ill shall... Get all those. Yes,
1: yes, yes, you have seen this. We're like, don't you understand? I have PTSD. I can't handle this right now. And the problem um, is that some people really do have PTSD and we need to create special things for them so that they don't suffer for no reason. But when you incentivize this, when you create a system where the people who feel emotional pain most easily, well, then you create a system where their entire social group, their entire society is constantly rewarding a lack of emotional control. Hmm. And so within their groups, within their little governance structures, you constantly have these meltdowns. And this is bad for the individual in these groups, because one, you're teaching an external locus of control, which like all of the research shows is just horrible. And it makes you have lower your ability to control yourself emotionally. But true, when you reward people for a lack of emotional control, then they at like a biological, like hard-coded level, lose the ability to control their emotions. And so this means that they experience a lot more pain over the long run. Ironically, when you create an entire system, an entire ideology, an internal governance framework around a moving emotional pain, you cause infinitely more emotional pain. And this is why since Pew started doing the research on this, conservatives have always been happier than progressives. Always. It's markedly happier and it's because they do not have these systems that are rewarding them for feeling bad.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's uh Well then I mean where would you say that this version of progressivism emerged? Virus. I didn't
1: This is a different video. Yeah. We got to talk about the virus in a different video and I would love to I'm not
0: referring to the virus. I'm talking about the roots of progressivism. Of oh, course, progressivism, progressivism broadly is an intragenerational it...
1: yeah yeah so progressivism as communism as an equality maximizer this came from communism it came from communist groups
0: oh and before that there was no focus on so would you say and communism rose around the industrial revolution right
1: yeah so if you look at things that my family fought for like historically right like my family was never progressive family in terms of the ideology that was motivating them. They were always Mm -hmm. motivated by maximizing individual agency was in the system. When they were in politics, you look a few generations back, big supporters of women's suffrage, big supporters of stuff like shorter work weeks during the age of robber barons, trying to increase autonomy by being very workers' rights. I think you can be adaptive in what maximizes individual well-being and autonomy while also saying that just trying to optimize for these things that the, that iteration of progressivism existed before the communist ideology really took over the Democratic Party and made them into
0: what they are. And well, I what like- you're describing is, I think, maybe more like my original definition of progressivism, like we're open to change and fixing things more quickly. No, you don't no, think so? No, what I'm
1: talking about is conservatism. All the things that I'm talking about, I consider conservative ideas, and they were conservative ideas. They hmm. were Republican ideas, and a lot of people say the Republicans and the progressives switched, but they didn't really. What happened is racism switched between the parties. That absolutely happened, but if you look at the policy positions that the various parties were having, what really happened is... This communist strain basically infected one of the groups and it became the Communist Party and had no sort of ties to its former self. Whereas the Republican movement did adapt to that. Like it reactively took positions that it hadn't taken before, but it maybe changed as much as the conservative and progressive movements did during the Trump era. We're like, there was definitely huge party switches. Like the protectionists became the non-protectionists and like the populists became the non-populists and the, all the, the people who were pro-war became the anti-war party. There was a huge party switch then. But fundamentally, mostly the people who were still on one party were still in the same party. And yet our grandkids will say, don't you the party switched when Trump took power? Which I think would make most progressives like, create, like, what? No, you can't say that. No one will say that in the future. But like, it's so obvious that's going to be the way people see things. You think so? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I don't agree with that. I'm just saying that's what people will say. And so I think that we can mislabel this sort of quote unquote flip that happened with the parties when it really wasn't a full flip that happened with the parties. Okay. Have I changed your mind or not?
0: A a little bit. I I think a lot of it might, for me, be caught in the weeds. I I would need to go through the history of, you know, what, yeah what all these things stood for in the past. And
1: and you too, too, you know, I'm talking, yeah. (laughs) Well, I love you, Simone. I love that we disagree about things and we make a point of trying to come to, like, we haven't done this in a podcast before where we like genuinely hadn't really talked through something before the podcast. So now you guys are seeing how we try to align on issues in our relationship and we'll keep talking about this. Until both of us come to a position where I'm like, either you convince me or I convince you. So actually, an argument she didn't make now that did convince me a lot, because we did talk about this a little bit before the podcast, And it is that progressivism before the virus was much more pluralistic in its aims, and that I am overly simplifying it, and that did actually convince me. And I do think that she's right, is these equality-driven angles of progressivism were only some of the most dominant factions, but there were many different factions within the progressive movement before the virus that had many different objectives. And that through that, they were much more pluralistic and I'm overly simplifying them. And so I did change my mind based on that argument, which didn't come up in this podcast.
0: Do you think you're oversimplifying them by saying that they were all fighting for equality or are you still going to hold that all of these No, I'm just saying the predominant are...
1: factions that had power to get things passed in the legislature and stuff like that. I think that they were fighting for equality more than anything else. I think that was their primary objective function. But I do also believe that it was a diverse party back then and it is wrong to paint the progressive party circa 80s, 90s, 70s, 60s as one group. In the same way that today I think that you can't really ideologically dissent without being expelled from the movement.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and maybe I'm thinking also more about my original point that like progressivism is more about being in favor of change and conservatism is not because I think you made an interesting argument that a lot of conservative groups have been very innovative, but I think it it can also equally be argued that the progressive movement, especially today is so ossified. It's so, it, it is now like just swathed in orthodoxy. And to talk about
1: what you mean there, because some people might be like, "Oh, I disagree." with that the turf movement historically? It would have had differences of opinions with other progressives, but it fundamentally would have still been allied with the progressive party. Mm-hmm. And yet it has been. These are feminists. These are old school blank slate as feminists. The reason mm-hmm. they believe what they believe, if you actually look at, they call themselves gender critical feminists. If you actually look at why they hold the positions they hold, is because they believe in. The older orthodoxy and the older orthodoxy was that humans aren't born with anything. The only reason we have gender is because we were raised to believe we have gender, right? And so they see anyone who is ossifying this idea of gender or saying, "Oh no, gender is real as fighting for this completely fictional and that it's not based on any sort of biological reality patriarchy, and that we should move towards a completely genderless society. I think a lot of people don't like actually know, what the gender critical movement is actually fighting for. And they believe this because that used to actually be the scientific consensus. Before Mm -hmm. academics were like, oh no, there actually are like really systemic differences between the way men and women think. And we now know this, and that you can't just raise a guy as a girl or raise a girl as a guy, and, and most of the time have that turn out okay. Actually, you can. There's been intergender studies on this. I'm not saying what's true. I'm saying what is the political orthodoxy of the academic institution now? So we can get on that later. But th- this has been a fantastic conversation, Simone.
0: Yeah, I love talking with you about these things. I especially love when we disagree because it gets yeah, really interesting. Too.
1: Yeah, That's where we're going to come up with a new idea. And we can t- we have a new thing to talk about for a few days.
0: Oh Yeah, things are so much more interesting when one or both of us is wrong because then we become slightly Sorry. more enlightened at the end. But only slightly. <laughs>
1: All
0: right, love you. Love you too.